Welcome to Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast, a podcast intended not just for parents or caregivers, but individuals seeking guidance around challenging behaviors or recurring and negative patterns in your life. Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast aims to have you asking, who am I parenting here, my child or myself? This podcast has a vision of you, the adult, stumbling upon a new relationship with the child you once were. Parenting is no easy task, but it doesn't have to be a burden. We are happy you are here. Welcome back to Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast. This is Julie Clark, your host, and this is the third of a three-part series that I did with Lisa Price Maidens. And for those of you who maybe didn't listen to the first two episodes, I just encourage you to pause and go back and listen to uh, episode 29, where I do a little intro of Lisa. She's the mother of five kids and has two grandchildren. And she returned to school to finish her early childhood educator certification after she had her family. And today we talk a little bit about one of the things she said in episode 20, in episode 29 was that um, the piece around relationship and things making sense to her, she also talked about how it takes practice to have the kinds of relationships that she talks about in the attachment and um, the connection. And so she talks a little bit in today's episode about the challenges and they can be as present as dealing with different personalities. So for example, toddlers can be challenging and the methods that you want to use in practicing attachment relationship work may not work in the moment. And so, um, constantly asking like, what is going on? Asking yourself, not asking the child, but asking what is going on, what is happening with the child. Um, you can see why I made that correction there. Cause I really do not believe in asking kids, why did you do that? Or what is going on? They can't answer you. And so don't put them in that place. <laughs> That could be a whole podcast episode. Um, and the connection that uh, that the importance of building that relationship with parents as well. And then Lisa talks a little bit about um, moving into a different role as an educator within the education system and how her theories of practice were really challenged and it was misaligned with who she became and what her passion was uh, as a parent and as a caregiver and how she eventually decided to make a switch again and just go back to uh, what she knew best. And so I will be posting in the show notes the Facebook page for Lisa. You can follow her daycare, her home daycare, uh, her routine there. I don't have kids, small kids anymore, but I really love just the simplicity. Not that it's simple. Her work is very hard, but the simplicity of the day that uh, when you go and just follow some of the things that she talks about, like working with blocks on this day and um, working with water and shapes and all that fun stuff. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and I've also said in previous podcasts that this is, um, I can't say for sure that this is my last podcast. It's either my last or my second last, just in the way uh, the schedules go and the recordings. And then when they're published after, after they're edited, uh, I do hope to 
complete a commitment that I had with a guest uh, and had to cancel due to internet uh, not working so well. So um, this will either be the last podcast for season two, or I'll have one more after this, and then I'm taking a break. And so as I've mentioned, I need to practice what I preach and uh, need to focus on some other key areas and get some things in place to help better manage my time. So I really appreciate those of you who continue to listen and continue to provide me feedback. Sometimes I'm just doing things and people catch me off guard because they mentioned something and, um, you know, because I've forgotten about a certain something and they've just listened to it. And so it's all in good fun. And I have the best of intentions on coming back for a season three. And I always leave you with encouraging you to leave a rating and review in iTunes. And so last time I said, you know, I really should look into how to do this. So I did. (laughs) So if you go to julieclarktherapy.com, you'll see a drop down for the podcast, hashtag parenting who and go to the very bottom of the page. And there is a link to iTunes. And when you click on the link to iTunes, it opens up the preview within iTunes. And then you'll see the list of all the podcast episodes within there. You have to actually leave the rating and review once you click in the view in iTunes link and it opens up the iTunes app. And then within there, uh, in the app store, then you have an opportunity to click on ratings and reviews. And because there's a certain number that we have to have before they'll actually publish it. And, um, and that's fine. We'll just keep working at it. But uh, I noticed that the five stars, like the first ones, I hate it. <laughs> and the second ones, uh, I don't like it. Third one, it's okay. Fourth one, it's good. And the fifth one, it's great. I don't care what you put. I want you to be honest because if you don't like it, you don't like it. And I need to know that. And I need to know how to change things. So uh, there's also a spot to uh, write a review. And so you have to sign into your iTunes account, which is sometimes a challenge for some people, me included. Um <laughs> which is hilarious because it only dates me when I say that. But um, yeah, so I'd love to hear from you. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And to those of you who are listening, who have uh, contacted me and are interested in becoming a guest, I am keeping track of all that information. Pat, my producer, is uh, wonderful to make sure that we have that. And we will be in touch in uh, in, uh, preparation for season three. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining me. Have a great day. Hey, Lisa, welcome back to Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast. Uh, Today is the last of our three-part series. And so for those of you who may be listening today and haven't heard the first two parts, I encourage you to go back and listen to episodes 29 and 30 in Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast. How are you today, Lisa? I'm good, Julie. How are you? I'm good. Good, good. Uh, So today I thought we would talk a little bit about something that you had said in uh, the last podcast was you had been talking about um, how everything had changed for you when you started to, your curiosities were validated by Darlene and you started to um, feel like the... I, I call it like your intuition, you were almost like given permission to follow that in a way and you had like a roadmap, um, which was the relationship piece and the connection and who you are to or with your, not to your child, but with your child. That's an important distinction. <laughs> I just corrected myself, um, is what matters. And you said that it takes practice to have those kinds of relationships. 
Um, so I wanted to spend some time today on this podcast to talk about what that means exactly. So I can, I can gather what that means, but, uh, I just thought you and I could, uh, could chat a little bit about that because there's challenges to it, isn't there? Oh, there is for sure, because you're dealing with different personalities. Mm -hmm. And so just because you're trying to meet with attachment and relationship doesn't mean it's going to be easy because you're going to have your challenging personalities and just, you know, working with toddlers, for example, is Mm -hmm. quite challenging in itself. And then if you're trying to work in a sort of relationship attachment way, um, it's challenging as well because sometimes the methods that you want to use, you they're not they're not necessarily working in that moment, and mm-hmm. you don't want to revert back to um, the methods of time out and stuff like that. So you you're always having to think, and you're always having to think outside of the box. And mm-hmm. what is going on? What is happening with this child? Is this just a developmental thing that's mm-hmm going on? Is this a behavior thing that's going on? And then it brings you back to your relationship with the parents and working with them to try to figure out what's happening, what is the best way to take care of the situation or help the situation. Um, So it's, you know, it's always a working progress. It's never, it's not something that's easy. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. And, um, you know, you still have to go in it with Although you're working with relationship and attachment, a lot of times people think, well, then, okay, then you just do nothing. Mm. And you're just, uh, you know, it's okay, Johnny. You know, you, you, you're crying because you're angry or you're, you know, you're upset. And, but then they, like, there's nothing really done. And then everything kind of gets out of control. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Like, you still have to have boundaries and limitations for children. You could still say no and still be in good relationship. <laughs> you know so it's I mean? not about, yeah, because you're saying like, it's not a permissive style of parenting where you're, because to me, that's not containment. And the ch- children need that containment. They need that safety net. They need that like safe place to land. Well, um, that's why I was saying earlier where mm-hmm. like attachment is tricky because some people see it as one side as that, you know, it's just a lot of, you're doing a lot of, talking you don't really say no um it's really hard for people to understand that there has to be a a real balance in it all like Mm -hmm. even with a 12 month old you could still say no you could still have boundaries and limitations it doesn't mean that the the child gets to you know uh, explore and then and have no um boundary at all Mm -hmm. That yeah. they're allowed to climb all because you know because some people think like with uh, like attachment mm-hmm. because when a child's young you know they attach by the senses so they want to be uh, very physical with you they want to be hugged by you they want to be near you and that's very important mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that they could pull your hair and hit mm-hmm. you and mm-hmm. scratch you and that there's no boundary to your own body mm-hmm. and it's important for kids to understand that. There's boundaries and limitations, but that could be done with respect, interrelationship, and attachment. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. That's a gem right there. 
I could just picture some parents hearing you say that going, oh, you know, because I think too, the other side of it is that oftentimes, not all the time, but parents may think that attachment is uh, breastfeeding until the child's six and that co-sleeping thing they have. And those other, those are other parenting styles of attachment. Um, but when you talk about some of that permissive stuff and a lot of the not saying no, that's where my head goes, um, whether I'm right or I'm not. And I could be challenged on that. But um. <laughs> Well, I think those, those things are important. Like everybody has their different uh, mm-hmm. values. And some people, you know, want to breastfeed long. Mm-hmm. Some people want to co-sleep, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have to teach that respect and the right. boundaries. Like if you're not sleeping because your child is waking yeah. up every two hours, yeah. then maybe it's time to change things. Because I think what parents, some parents don't understand, and not all parents, mm-hmm. um, is that you know when children develop, their, att- their attachment needs actually change along with their development. Mm-hmm. So they're always going to, you need attachment forever until mm-hmm. you're 99, 100, however old you mm-hmm. live up to. You're always going to need attachment in your life. Mm-hmm. But the development of attachment is going to change. So like I was saying earlier, like in their first year, they attach through the senses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they need that physical touch, the affection, the smell, the hearing, all of that. Mm-hmm. But in the second year, it starts to change. They mm-hmm. still need that. They still need their hugs and their kisses and all of that. But then they start to change that they want to be like whoever they're attached to. That could be mom, dad, could be caregiver. They start to imitate. Mm-hmm. You know, they might want to be a pilot like daddy or, mm-hmm. you know, a bus driver like mommy, you know, whatever. Or they might like to want to be like their brother. They're, and they could be attached to more than one person because that's mm-hmm. another thing that people get confused with mm-hmm. is they think they only should be attached to their parents. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that old proverb of it takes a village mm-hmm. to raise a child, mm-hmm. that's true. Mm-hmm. They should have lots of attachments in their life, mm-hmm. you know. And as they grow, you know, three, four, five, six, it all changes the way mm-hmm. they attach to their parents, to the way they attach to their teachers I mean you'll see like when they go to school when they're in kindergarten and they're like I love Mrs. Smith you know and they're like oh Mrs. Smith and they want to make their little cards for their teacher and like they truly feel that because well thank goodness they're attached to Mrs. Smith (laughs) yeah you know yeah I'm uh it would be great to be that kindergarten teacher because you see that based on the the developmental stage that the kids are at that you're teaching oh that's the part I loved about (laughs) kindergarten was that oh Miss Lisa I love you and it's just like oh I love you too it's like so (laughs) sweet to see that they they just love and they take your hand and they kiss it yeah it's just so sweet you know because it's like you see that they're in that stage of uh of attachment, you know, and, and those are the kids that are able to uh, like attach to more than one person. Mm-hmm. Those are the kids that you really see do so well mm-hmm. because they're not preoccupied. Right. And, and they're developing according to how they're supposed to develop. But yeah. some kids get stuck if those needs aren't being met. Yeah. And they're still, they could still be at the census stage. They could still be at the sameness stage you know, but they could be five years old. Right. 
stuck yeah. in that stage where their needs aren't being met. Yeah. So it's, it's um, really an individual basis in a, in a circumstance of environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, for every child, it's different. Some kids, they do great in a center-based care, and they could be surrounded by a lot of people and still have their attachment needs met. Mm-hmm. And then there's other children who are super sensitive mm-hmm. and they can't manage in a big group setting and their attachment needs can't be met. Mm-hmm. So it becomes, you know, and, and at least with childcare, you have a, you have a choice of right. what situation you put your child in. But once they're in school, you no longer have that choice and it becomes really difficult. So you really want to get the relationship and attachment, you know, at a good point before your child goes to school. Which is a really good point and a great uh, lead into one of the other things I wanted to talk about in today's podcast. Um, And for those who are listening, where we live in Ontario, Canada, school starts full time for kids at age four years old, correct? Sometimes three if their birthday's in December. That's right, if their birthday's in December, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't have that with my two kids. They were more earlier, like they were earlier in the year, and um, right, yeah. So for those of you listening, and so you're talking a lot about like the different developmental stages. You've mentioned like, um, you know, toddlers and one-year-old and all the way up to six-year-olds. And so that, the first six years of life, is the most integral in terms of that attachment. Like when you say talking about getting it right, you want to try and get it right before they go to school um, because you don't have that control over where you're sending your child necessarily. Some people choose to homeschool. Some people choose to, you know, school in different smaller settings and, and we're not talking. Yeah. And that's and if that. you, like if you know you're sending your child to school or even if you're sending them to daycare, mm-hmm. you know, you want to make sure that they're prepared. Mm-hmm. Like our job as parents is to prepare our kids for life. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you need to prepare them for school. You can't put them in a situation where they've never been in a group setting right. and suddenly pop them into school. That's not preparing them. No. So mm-hmm. like if you want success, the best way to get success is for them to have experience because they're not going to know what's going on, what's happening mm-hmm. if they've never had that experience before. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they can't do it, but it makes it way harder for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. to do it and they're so little and they don't have the mm-hmm. maturity I mean even us as adults when we go into a new situation it could be quite difficult when we don't know what to expect mm-hmm. and so when we are taking a child and we're putting them in that situation and they don't have the maturity we have to know how to make a friend to know how to and even as adults when we go into new situations what's the first thing we do we try to look for somebody familiar right we try to find somebody who might have something in common with us. Mm-hmm. Someone who smiles at us. We're going to be drawn to that person. Mm-hmm. But kids, don't, they don't always have those instincts to right. be able to do that. Yeah. Well, and as a somatically trained therapist, I'm sitting here going, yeah. And the other piece to that is their bodies are very small. So the uncomfortable that, you know, you and I would feel going, if we're not comfortable going into a room full of people that's spread over a larger <laughs> demographic or in I don't know if demographic's the right word but a larger body right than yeah. a child who goes into a situation they have little bodies and so that uncomfortable is you know 10 times stronger for them and uh, so that's another context that I just want to throw out there that uh, 
that we don't really that we don't really think about. Um, so, in preparation for school and in understanding relationship, as you have been talking about, one of the things that I know you've had some experiences working in the education system, and um, so for me, I there's different. And I can't pinpoint it to a specific school, I can't pinpoint it to a specific teacher or anything like that, but in general, there over my years, there have been, and this is in my own experience, having kids that have gone through the school system as well, there have been those monitors at recess time who, in their way of trying to um, remove two children who are having hands-on in the schoolyard, which is a big no-no. There's no hands-on in the schoolyard. Um, how they would discipline with that or for that, would they, they would tell Johnny to go up against the wall and to spend some time there the rest of the recess or what have you. Then I've got this other sort of, you know, storyline that I hear, which is that they'll invite Johnny, the monitor, who's job is to make sure everyone's safe at recess and I get some things can really happen and I understand why the no hands-on rules there um I also know it's difficult for kids to follow that but that's not the conversation that we're having right now but um so for that monitor that might invite that same child Johnny to come walk with them during the like 20 minutes of recess or even just do it for five minutes there's a huge difference there in terms of what we're talking about in that relationship piece, isn't there? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yes. The walking with is much better than the mm -hmm. put, putting aside. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, you know, there is three, 400 children out on the schoolyard with three people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. monitoring the situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that poor person could have 20 kids. <laughs> Mm -hmm. hanging onto their hand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes I find uh, we're, we're in a system where we're setting kids up to fail mm -hmm. because you can't meet those needs. It's impossible. And that's my own personal experience, just like working with large groups, mm -hmm. is that you, no matter how educated you are, how intuitive you are, you cannot meet all the needs. It's impossible mm -hmm. to meet all those uh, relationship and attachment needs mm -hmm. of those children. And so you're talking about your experience in the larger system, like the education system, for example. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not your home. You're not working your home. With a, yes. When you're working with a large, when you have like 30 children, mm -hmm. it's impossible to meet every single one of them their attachment needs mm -hmm. because you're dealing with other things along mm -hmm. with that mm -hmm. uh, developmental needs um you know sensitivities every child is you know has a different temperament a different level of sensitivity mm -hmm. um children you know there there might be some um uh like learning disabilities. Learning disabilities. I was, yeah, I was trying to think of the correct word to use. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, some other needs. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's extraordinary. And usually the kids who are the loudest mm -hmm. are going to be the ones that you're having to meet their demands, their needs. Mm -hmm. And the ones that are the quietest, mm -hmm. which you think are the ones that are okay. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They're not okay. Oh my gosh. I tell, I tell people that I work with all the time. Yeah. Because in yeah. the context of that, you know, room of 30 kids in a school, for example, um, there's order that has to happen and there's, you know, the learning that has to happen and there's the moving from this class to this class. So there has to be some semblance of organization. And so you can imagine, I always say Johnny, but there's, I have no qualms about um, that name. It's just my, my name for all kids when I talk about them. Um, you know, if Johnny's that loudest kid and he's making himself be known, there's going to be attention on that to try and subdue that, to minimize that, to keep the order. But then the other like personality, uh, sensitivity for Susie over here is going to get lost in that. And it's always going to be on Johnny because the organization and the safety of the kids is the parent is the primary objective. And that's what it becomes. It just, it becomes more of making, uh, putting out the little small fires to make Mm -hmm. the classroom safe. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've worked with fantastic people Mm -hmm. who are so intuitive, Mm -hmm. but honestly, the numbers make it impossible to meet those needs. It's not the people. Mm -hmm. People understand the concept that the attachments and relationships are important and that's Mm -hmm. what kids need to learn. Mm -hmm. However, the numbers, you can't do it. It's Mm -hmm. impossible. You're working, it's working against you Mm -hmm. and trying to get your job done. Mm You know, and that was one of the most frustrating parts I found because I went in there, you know, with an attachment relationship mindset, like theory, the philosophy, that's how I work. And I wasn't able to use it at all. Uh, And so I found it very frustrating, Um, especially in that system for myself. You don't work with the parents. It's sort of like hands off to the parents, like in the position I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only time I really got to work with parents is uh, when I was doing the um, after-school program because we're seeing the parents All right. Pick um, up and stuff. every day. And those are the children I probably had the best relationship yeah. with because I was also able to have a relationship with their parents. So when things were going sour, mm-hmm. I was able to have a chat with the parents and we were able to talk about you know how we would handle certain things and the child could see that, you know, there was that bridge there, mm-hmm. uh, that relationship with the parents. And I think that makes a, a difference as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, so interesting how, like, because you were talking in the second episode about how it takes practice to have these kinds of relationships. And then you're in this what you would think would be a primed environment to practice your attachment mindset. However, the sheer numbers and all the other stuff like sensitivities and um, special needs and developmental stages, all that kind of stuff, but the sheer numbers made it virtually impossible for you to entertain who you were, who, who you had grown to become as a caregiver. Um, it just wasn't even possible to to be that for the kids. And so what were some of the like struggles you saw in terms of, um, I guess if a parent is listening and they're seeing a certain behavior, which is going to be unique for every child, but 
what, what sorts of things, I mean, we talked a little bit about that preoccupation where they can't go and play with their friends or they're sitting there and fidgeting, but what are some other things that you noticed as a result of not being able to work in that relationship um, way? Like in regards to children's behavior? Yes, yeah. Um, well, I think there is like a lot of, um, I think some children just even have trouble learning mm -hmm. because in that sheer group of numbers, mm -hmm. it's difficult to, like, I, I would have trouble concentrating mm -hmm. because it's, there's so much going on mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't want to put down, you know, the education system or, mm -hmm you know, full day kindergarten, but it, it's very difficult. It's very loud. Mm -hmm. And I found that, um, you know, just with trying to just establish those relationships with the children was difficult because there was always so much going on mm -hmm. that you went to sit down with one child to, that you could see that maybe it was struggling, that was having some trouble finding something to do. So you might sit down with them, you know, oh, let's look at this puzzle together. Where do you think this? And you start, you know, working with a child, trying to build that relationship with them. But then you got, you know, two people over in the corner starting to throw the blocks at each other mm -hmm. or, you know, your typical kindergarten behavior that you would have, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so then now you're leaving that child to go over right. to break up this little fight like the fire like I would say you go put yeah. the fire out and then you go back and now you know the little one is off wandering again has left the puzzle yeah and is just kind of you know walking around trying to find something to do yeah but not knowing what to do mm -hmm. you know and that's you know the part of when I was talking about um, that preoccupation that non-emergent you know, a behavior that they're having that they just can't mm -hmm. seem to find something to do because, uh, you know, I like to describe it like uh, Dr. Neufeld does with the cup not full. So mm -hmm. he's looking to get his cup full and he, that's just not being able to happen with that child. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's in my experiences. And every classroom is different. Every school oh, is course. different. Um, oh. And I'm just talking in general of like, yeah my experiences mm -hmm. and what I have seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And truth be told, when I considered um, shifting careers and doing, becoming a therapist, I considered teaching for a very brief moment and like literally had a visual in my head of that quiet one sitting in the corner and not being able to go and help that little one. And that was when I knew I needed to go the therapy route and not the teacher route. Yeah. For yeah, me, it wasn't about, yeah, for me, it wasn't about like the, your, uh, you work against your moral compass. If you're, yeah. if you're uh, you know, if your theory or um, philosophy yeah. is uh, attachment relationship based, it's, yeah. it was hard to not bring your work home with you. Like to go home and not to think about yeah. that child that you just right. can't reach them. You can't break through yeah. to be able to help them because you don't have the um, opportunity to build that relationship. And I knew from previous work when I was doing home daycare, 
because you you're only having five children. Mm-hmm. I know the difference it makes when you're able to break through and have that attachment and that relationship. It makes all the difference in the world mm-hmm. in handling behaviors. Right. And so to then be able to that. have a child and to watch them learn and develop. Yeah. You're really able to see a difference in yeah. the way the child is. And to me, that was that's the piece that was missing for me is Mm -hmm. like at the end of the year, you know, you might see like a few kids, but those were the kids that they would, if they were, you know, in the, in the jungle in you know, like, um, you know, not even having like a teacher around, they would have still learned. Mm. Like there's children out there that just can, they're going to still learn. They're very adaptable. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they, their temperament is just, I move forward, I could learn, like, and there's other kids, not every kid is like that. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a lot of kids who are very sensitive, who need their, they need a little hand-holding yeah. uh, to be able to, um, to develop and to grow and to, because uh, and, you've all talked about that. Yeah, and for me, that was discouraged, the right. hand-holding, um, and I don't mean literally, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, hand, but, but the time, holding in, trying to guide them along mm-hmm. and help move them along with some, some help through relationship. And that was discouraged. Mm-hmm. That. It yeah. was like almost um, um, one particular colleague called it like, you know, babying. Mm-hmm. Them. Yes. Yeah. And, but you know, they're three. Yeah. Or they're four. Yeah. No, they can put their done. coat on themselves. Well, actually, yeah. no, they can't. Yeah. So let's not, you know, even if even if they can, sometimes there's Mm -hmm. days where they just Mm -hmm. need that extra help, right? You know, and that it's so it's okay to give them that extra help. Yeah. And tomorrow we're going to try again, you know, for them to put their coat on themselves. But maybe that day they need that help, and always. And again, but like I was saying earlier, it's about the boundaries and limitations, right? You know. You have to, it's like a dance. You have to know mm-hmm. when to step in and when to step out. Yeah. So yes, you know, we want them to be able to put their coat on themselves, but there are days where you see them struggling. It has nothing to do with their ability to put the coat on, yeah. but everything to do with their struggle of making it through that day. Yeah. So maybe at that moment, they need help with their zipper or mm-hmm. they need help with their coat. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow we're, you know, tomorrow you're going to try again. And, and then you give them that opportunity to try again. So mm-hmm. to coddling would be like if every day I'm putting on the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But giving it them help in that moment and then the next day saying, okay, buddy, you're going to do it yourself. Like, right. you know, show me you can do it. And they, they might have that more emergent energy that day and be mm-hmm. able to put on the coat. Well, so, and that's where you as the whatever, like the adult in the space, that's where it's incumbent upon you to remember to, oh yeah, yesterday, Johnny, I needed to help him, but today I'm going to encourage him to, whereas, you know, that takes work on your part. And so well, that's why I said it's, a, it's a lot of work. It's yeah. not easy. And you're always practicing because right. you're always trying to figure out, is that going to work? Did that work? Mm-hmm. Did helping him put his coat on, did that actually mm-hmm you know, help him and just give him some peace for that day that maybe he had a really hard time that day, or maybe it didn't help him. And then, you know, for the next time with that particular child, but it's going to be different with Susie. So Mm -hmm. when you're in this type of job, I mean, your brain is always going because Mm -hmm. 
can't, it's not the same for every child. Like I, I have the same rules, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to my childcare, but applying those rules is different for every child because mm-hmm. what's going to work for one child might not work with another child. So we're all going to go have a nap. Mm-hmm. So that's just going to happen at least as daycare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nap is important. Mm-hmm. How nap is handled is going to be different for each mm-hmm. kid. Mm-hmm. Because not every kid is going to be able to handle nap in the same way. Yeah. And so that's why I always tell parents that the same thing for school is you got to prepare your child. If you know that they're going to daycare, if you know that they're going to school, your job in the previous months is to prepare your child for that experience so they don't come in and that's bam. Yeah. And it's all this new, so much new stuff. The child is overwhelmed and you're trying to build this relationship with them, Mm -hmm. but they're preoccupied with their being overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, this lack of... And you start to notice like accidents at home, not sleeping, fears. Yeah. Yeah. Your best bet is to start early, whether it's school or daycare, whether you go take pictures of your school. Right. Yeah. I totally do that. (laughs) Provider. You make a little book. You read it every day. Yeah. You know, that you give them that experience. I think they do like uh, they have a new thing where, you know, the child could go uh, have an experience of riding a school bus. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they do. do. You and I have older kids. So, this wasn't happening, but you're right. They, they have done some things to really bridge that, that stuff for, for the start of school. And even like those transitions from like, you know, middle school to, um, high school, they, they have done some really great things actually in terms of that. So that gives us hope that the system is recognizing the importance of being able to bridge those key areas for kids. Um, if can we shift gears a little bit, Lisa? Because um, the other piece that I really want to get to and is so aligned with the podcast, um, and actually speaking about alignment, it was it was the opposite of that for you. You felt like you were misaligned in your work in the education system compared to your theory of practice or your attachment mindset, um, and you made a decision to leave that and go back to uh, somewhere where you could practice what you felt intuitively was the best thing for you. Yeah, I think the funny thing is, is that when I was doing home daycare, like a lot of people look at home daycare as babysitting. Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel like, you know, I was looked at as a professional. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt valued, like I always, my daycare parents have always made me feel valued, but I just didn't feel like I was a professional. Mm -hmm. And I just thought going out and you know, to the working world as I looked at it, how I viewed it then, mm-hmm. um, I would be more viewed as a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really struggled, especially like working in uh, the education system. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think that the value was there at the time. I don't know if it's now mm-hmm. or what uh, we did as the educators. Mm-hmm. Um, and my role was completely different than mm-hmm. I expected it to be. And it wasn't um, I felt like I wasn't able to give what I had to offer. Almost like, um, you know, I knew I had so much to offer, but I I wasn't able to, looking for the word. Like integrate it. You weren't able to yeah. integrate it into the exactly. position, into the environment, into the setup, essentially, the system. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I felt it was a big piece that was being missed. And again, yeah. when we talk about relationship, like I felt I wasn't being heard. Right. So, you know, if you don't feel like you belong, if you mm-hmm. don't feel like you're being heard, if you don't feel like you're being valued, mm-hmm. you know, that's huge in a relationship piece because mm-hmm. that's all part of being in relationship. So I didn't feel like I was in relationship with my workplace at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people I work with, mm-hmm. I love. Mm-hmm. But the system itself, I didn't yeah. feel the value, the belonging, yeah. you know, um, to me, that's very important as a human to, to feel that from yeah. your workplace, from your relationships, yeah. and you're going to do your best work when you're feeling that way. Absolutely. So felt that, yeah. um, and I felt like I wasn't giving the kids what they deserved and it was yeah. really hard for me to go home right. at night and not think about those, um, those little ones that I wasn't able to meet their needs. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I decided to just switch gears and go back to doing what I really loved and mm-hmm. what I knew that I am able to, um, you know, provide uh, the abilities I do have mm-hmm. um, in my practice, mm-hmm. which yeah. I, and, you know, integrate my theory and philosophies in my mm-hmm. practice through doing my home daycare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's awesome. And I actually love following your Facebook page. <laughs> Because I'm like, if I had a child, I wish, you know, uh, that you were around when my kids were smaller. Um, Not that they had bad experiences, but just that I know they get a very, very uh, structured day, a very fair day, a very caring and nurturing day. And uh, for for those, Lisa, who uh, maybe are local, and I know you don't have a lot of spots available in your daycare, but um, could we post a link of your Facebook page for those? Oh, yes, please. Okay, okay yeah. so I'll post that in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Lisa, for your insight, for your experience, for your professionalism, for your um, just your insights in all that you have to offer, both as a parent, as a grandparent, and as a child caregiver. And um, I always love chatting with you. It's always so informational and lots of insights there. So thanks for sharing that with my listeners today. Well, thank you for having me, Julie. I appreciate it. And um, maybe we can do something again. Absolutely. Yeah. You take care. Bye for now. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining me today. Please remember that information provided in this podcast is not therapy and is not a substitute for receiving help from a licensed or regulated healthcare professional. For more information on this episode and links discussed here today, please see the show notes. Please also visit my website, which includes more resources and social media links, as well as ways of getting in touch with me at julieclarktherapy.com. Welcome to Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast. It has been quite some time since I last visited you all through podcast. As you may or may not recall, if you do listen to the episodes, I did make mention of a special project I was working on that was, um, I guess you could say, eating up a lot of my time. Uh, Time management has been a real 
difficulty, a real challenge for me of late. And unfortunately, that hasn't changed too much, although I hope that uh, it will come to a, um, I guess, well, I'm hoping that it'll, that there will be some clarity around uh, maybe making some changes uh, for what it is that I do day to day and how I can gain back some time to be able to do my podcast again. So I have some ideas in the works. I have some contacts for individuals as guests for the podcast. So it's not like there's nothing happening. It's just that new episodes aren't being released right now. But I was sitting here today and I was feeling like I really wanted to reach out and I've really been missing doing the podcast. And I was trying to think of something that I could discuss or talk about that would be useful for you all for the audience that I could discuss without a guest and so this impromptu podcast is going to be about coping skills or coping strategies and so for those of you who maybe have embarked in uh, some kind of therapy or counseling I'm imagining at some point coping skills or coping strategies has been brought up or discussed the one thing about this is that oftentimes I remember my work in uh, children's mental health inpatient unit oftentimes when there was like emotional dysregulation or there was some challenges around uh, maybe a patient going out on pass and it not going so well one of the first things uh, when they are admitted into inpatient that we try and teach through groups or individual one-on-one work is coping strategies and so if there was an unsuccessful pass uh, and just as a quick FYI, a pass is they're still an inpatient, but they do either a short pass that maybe is within the hospital. So maybe a family member comes and they leave the unit, but they're not allowed to leave the hospital grounds. Or maybe it's for um, special recital. They have, and it's a one they've been maybe preparing for this all year, and it's a one-time opportunity. And so. Uh, they'll have the option of going off-site and attending that for a specified duration. And then there's overnight, so uh, sometimes they'll, well not sometimes, usually there's been a big event um, that has happened that preceded the admission. And so sometimes doing like an overnight pass back at home, uh, if there's something that maybe happened there and just kind of testing the readiness of the individual's resilience and or medication changes, rest, uh, skills acquired through groups and interactions with staff. They'll do a little test and see how, oh, and also the support for the family as well. They'll do a little test and see how uh, ready or stabilized the patient is. And uh, so sometimes when they would come back, so maybe the past wasn't successful, they would often, one of the first questions we would ask is, you know, what coping strategies did you try? And the thing about coping strategies is like, I'm looking at a list right now of 117 of them. (laughs) And you're not gonna relate to all 117 of those coping strategies. It really has to be a process of trial and elimination. And so, for example, some of the items on this list include do a puzzle. Uh, blow bubbles, squeeze an ice cube tightly, go to the library, pet your cat or dog, clean or organize a space, do the dishes, dance to music, invite a friend over, pull some weeds. That's actually one of my favorite ones. 
And some other things include jump rope, smell a flower, touch the petals, some mindfulness stuff in there. Uh, sing your favorite song out loud, also one of my favorites when I'm driving in the car especially. <laughs> Brush your hair a hundred times. What else do we have here? Pray, build some Lego houses, call a hotline or a helpline, read some comics, cry, love that one, window shop, swing on a swing. So as you can see, there's a variety of different things here and they involve like physical activity, they involve some, you know, thinking, they involve interacting with others, connecting with others, and there's a various list of things. And so, as I said, you're not going to resonate to every one of these. You're also probably going to have tried something and realized that it didn't go well for you, or maybe it's something that you're not particularly fond of. Like if it says eating ice cream, obviously, or eating popcorn, don't do that. Just don't do that. So the key is, and the reason that I'm talking about this is it's pretty standard. Like when you're going through a difficult time, it's pretty standard to understand what is your go-to thing. So we often as therapists refer to it as what is your tool in your toolbox? And so most definitely the best time to establish what these things are and what works for you is to do that when you're not in distress and when you're not in a low mood and when you're not feeling particularly angry about things. So when you're feeling more like yourself, it's the best time to either work with someone, a professional, or having done that in the past and referring back to your list of things and testing out some, some of these strategies. And so I found this resource online that I'm going to just follow for the purposes of my explanation here. And I will give some credit to that resource. And it was through a website, indigodea.com. And what I liked about it was, and I felt it was important to sort of tease this apart for you all, is what is the point of a coping skill? So I just kind of talked a little bit about that, but this gives it a really nice breakdown. So for example, uh, first and foremost, it is the intention of it is to use as a distraction. So as it says here, absorb your mind in something else. And the advantage to that is there's short-term relief. If there's a crisis, it can give you an opportunity to reframe get some sense of control over what's happening and directly go to your distraction activity, your coping strategy. And again, you can see now why that's so important to have something that you really resonate with versus something that you're not sure of what it is because you haven't done the activity. And so to use it as a distraction when you're particularly distressed, the idea is that it's the short-term relief that helps to uh, re-regulate the body into a um, more balanced state and then most often, maybe not all the time, most often it will help to settle your nervous system and you'll help to feel a little more online or in line with your emotions or have more feel like you have more control over your emotions. And so uh, the con to it is that you can't do it for long. It doesn't, it does not resolve underlying issues. And it also says here that uh, medications can make it hard to concentrate. So that 
is important to acknowledge because those of you who are listening may have that piece to it as well, the medication piece. So we also talk a lot about coping strategies with respect to grounding. And so this one is particularly of interest to me as a somatically trained therapist. So grounding is getting out of your head, so that thinking brain, and getting more into your body, embodied. And it says and the world, but I'm not really too concerned about the world. I'm more interested in your ability to get into your body. And so I had this little girl once say to me in, in therapy, she's like, um, but my head and my brain are in my body. And I was like, yeah, 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 you're right. <laughs> so she totally called me out on that. But um, it's just a different sensation in the body. And so the thoughts are one thing. It's not really a sensation per se, but the thoughts are that sort of that cognitive piece in the brain thinking in in um in that way and and as a lot of people can relate to especially with those with anxiety is the brain can um create these I always say like thoughts that it's like a hot air balloon grabs them and just takes off with them and then it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and overwhelming so distraction is this temporary thing grounding actually helps you to slow down or to stop a sense of feeling disconnected or feeling numb or feeling out of body there's the you know hot air balloon taking you away type of thing so using your body and the senses like smell taste touch hearing uh, those are all experiences that are going to bring you back to a sense of connection with your body so for example, walking on grass barefoot or in the sand, I know for myself, it's, I live in a really cold climate in the winters. So uh, in like January, February, that tends to be dark days, freezing cold. I like have visions of myself walking on a beach and sand through my toes. So that's a big one for me. And so it can help ground me in the here and now. And it helps to distract from the thoughts that are taking you away. And being more present in our body helps us to acknowledge eventually, and this takes practice, eventually allows us to bring ourselves back to beginning to recognize that our bodies really do want to be in that state of balance all the time. And so bringing ourselves back into our bodies through grounding activities can help us to begin to reconnect with that part of us that wants to be in this homeostasis state. And as adults, we get particularly far removed from that. It becomes more and more difficult the older that we get and the more experiences that we have. And so practicing grounding, getting out of your head and more into your body is really, really important for um, that, like I said, that present moment, being in the here and now, noticing the chair supporting you right you're not falling on the floor because you're sitting on a chair there's some realism to that and it can be difficult because if you're someone who's suffered with trauma or even extreme stress being in that more dissociative state it feels safer to your nervous system feels safer to your body because it's your nervous system your body's way of actually protecting you from harm so Asking someone to ground themselves by coming into their body can actually be, for some individuals, not all, 
can actually be very triggering for the individual. And so although as I talk about it in the context of coping skills and coping strategies here, I, I'm not talking to those who have maybe tried this type of thing in the past and have really failed because, and by failed, I mean like they started to hyperventilate, they started to feel panicky, uh, they just wanted to dig it up and run. That is not an indicator that that's a really good scenario for you in that moment. It probably is a good indicator that maybe you should seek some professional help and get some guidance around that just to help settle your nervous system so that eventually you can come back to uh, a sort of um, mindfulness type activity and um, getting out of your head and into your body. So some people have tr trouble with uh, yoga and um, breathing exercises for the same reason because again, and also those for example that live with chronic pain, when we talk about like noticing what's happening inside your body, they're only noticing the pain. And so we have to do it in a very, I'm trained uh, via Dr. Peter Levine's somatic experiencing theories and 